Our Father, we ask you today to be very present with us in our hearts and minds. This hour we commit to the study of your word. We know, Father, that uh, no one has a corner on the truth, that you are the truth, and your ways are higher than our ways. And yet, Father, you have chosen to reveal much of yourself to us, your majesty, your glory, your power, your mercy, your grace. Father, may we appropriate those things that you have granted to us, and may we stand in awe of your majesty and your power. To think that we can be visited today by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That as we uh, view your word and, and seek to grasp truth that will help each of us, that you're here present with us this morning, speaking to our hearts. Lord, remove any sin from our hearts and help us to stand clean before you today. And Lord, may we be true seekers of knowledge and understanding, of wisdom, that we might be a blessing in this world, that we might touch other lives for the sake of your Son. We submit to your authority today. We resist the evil one in every manifestation he might make and pray that you will be exalted alone. In Christ's name, amen. We're beginning the 28th chapter of Genesis today. Let's read the first nine verses of chapter 28. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paden Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Esau, Jacob and Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take to himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. So Esau saw the daughters of Canaan, that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. I think one of the most profound things we discover as we read this particular passage is the change in the heart of Isaac. Isaac had felt, as we looked through, looked through the previous chapter, that he had been betrayed by his wife and by his son, that they had hoodwinked him and that he had given the blessing to the son that he had not desired to give the blessing to. But we see in this chapter he has resigned himself to the situation as it has uh, developed, and he has chosen to accept the role of father and blesser of his son Jacob. I think it's very, very important to understand this change in Isaac's thinking, in his heart, in his attitude. It makes a big difference in our understanding of these first verses of the 28th chapter of Genesis. I think he, were, first of all, recognized the wisdom of his wife's request that they send Jacob off to Paden Aram that he might obtain a wife from uh, the family rather than from Canaan. Now, whether Jacob would have chosen a wife from amongst the Canaanites or not, we don't know. Hopefully, he wouldn't have. But his brother certainly had. But just to guarantee that that wouldn't happen, they sent him off. Isaac commissioned him to go. Isaac called him in, called Jacob in, willingly called Jacob in, instructed him, and then he blessed him, not reluctantly, not with a, uh, a, you know, a desire or a thought that, oh, I have to do this, but I don't really want to bless this man who has tricked me. 
he now recognizes that this is the will of the Almighty, and he is going to submit to that will. And the animosity that he could have maintained in his heart against his son Jacob and against his wife, he has allowed it to dissipate, to leave his heart, it seems. In fact, we discover in this passage, I believe, a true fatherly concern for his son Jacob. He really cares about his son here. And he is commanding him to go find a wife from amongst the family, just as he had. Now, he hadn't gone to find a wife. His father had sent a servant to bring him a wife, but nevertheless, a wife from the family. So he's commanding Jacob to go do this. How does he know that there's a wife to be had back there in Paden Aram? Well, as I mentioned before, apparently there was communication. There were, there were no postal routes in those days as we think of postal routes. But word apparently traveled back and forth along the trade routes often enough that at least he knew that the family was alive and he knew apparently that, there, that Laban had daughters and there was some hope in sending Jacob there to uh, find a wife from amongst the family. I think it's important to note that all that, this, all that occurs here is it done according to the custom of that day. Rebecca could have said to Jacob, look, we've really gotten our father, up, my husband, your father, upset, so why don't you just sneak off to Paden Aram and uh, I'll tell you to go find a wife and Isaac will find out about it, but he'll resign himself. No, she doesn't choose to go that route. She chooses to to go directly to Isaac now. She could have done this before, but at least she does it now. And she presents to him the situation, and Isaac calls Jacob in. She chooses to respect the authority of her husband at this point, at this juncture, and to stand, I think, in proper relationship to what God would have done here. So Jacob would be sent off with his father's blessing, and I think this is extremely important to Jacob. For him to know, as he goes, that his father and his mother are wholeheartedly behind his quest, behind him in this journey. That he, now, certainly he is escaping his brother Esau, so there's this in the back of his mind. Esau is a problem, and I've got to get away from Esau. But if he was also fleeing without his father's blessing, uh, it would have been almost overwhelming for him to go on this journey knowing that back home there's a lot of animosity, there's a lot of trouble, and if I ever go back, I, you know, I can't even go back home. But this way he knows he can return home at a later time. And of course his mother was hoping he'd be back home soon, uh, soon maybe within the year, she said, as we read in the 27th chapter. And in a few days you can come back when Esau's wrath has subsided. Of course by that I think is implied a much longer time than just a few days. But probably not much more than a year. So what we have here, I think, is a picture of a healing time. A healing time between father and son, between Isaac and Jacob. Isaac, it would seem from what we have been able to discover from these passages in Genesis, that there was not a good relationship between Isaac and Jacob. Because of Isaac's uh, love for Esau and Rebekah's love for Jacob, there had been this conflict in the home and this rivalry, this competition. And so now it seems that there, there is a healing happening. Father is accepting son, and son is accepting father. And each are, are, are respecting their relationship to one another as father and son. There had been a rift. Both had acted impetuously. Isaac trying to bless Esau and, and neglect Jacob, and Jacob trying to steal that blessing away. They had not acted in accordance with what we think, uh, of course, from our understanding of all of Scripture, a, a, quote, Christian person or a man of God should act. But they are now repentant, it would seem. And they desire to act in a manner that pleases God. And it makes a big difference. You just sense a kind of a, a release and a relief here, at least in the early verses of this passage of Scripture. This repentance on the part of Isaac, but also on the part of Jacob, this submission to God, which is implied, I think, in what takes place here, 
and the emotional healing that I, I believe we see in this passage here, at least implied, I think has a great deal to do with the encounter that Jacob has with God. I think we have the mistaken feeling sometimes that, or, or belief, that we can experience God's blessing without choosing to walk in God's way on a regular basis. That because we call ourselves Christian, that because we go to church every Sunday, that, that God's uh, going to accept us fully as we are and work through us as fully as he possibly could. I don't think that's true. I, I think that sin stands in the way. I think that attitudes that are not God's attitudes that are in our hearts block the door of proper communication with God and do not allow him to use us as he would. We become tools that are, if you would, a saw that is dull or you know, just a tool that's not effective that God cannot use. And we talked about that a little bit before, the, Paul's concept of being set aside, put up on a shelf more, more or less. And this was certainly uh, what seems to have happened to Isaac, at least in part in the latter years of his, of his life. As we walk before God, I think it's important. The scripture gives us 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not a verse of salvation. It's a verse that's, uh, that's the context is, of course, the first chapter, uh, yeah, first John, first chapter of 1 John, but the whole book of 1 John, which uh, my understanding is John's writings to the church, to believers. And this means that it's sort of, this becomes sort of the wash rag, if you will, of the Christian, that which helps us to realize that we are in daily need of cleansing. As Jesus spoke to Peter at the time of the washing of Peter's feet, you're clean but not all. There's that rubber meets the road dirt that needs to be clean, cleaned off. You know, the wrong reaction we have to our spouse in a certain situation, that, that, that uh, improper action or improper thought. These things, that we can't just let them say, oh, well, that's just part of life, you know, because it begins to clog up the channel of communication with God. It's got to be washed out, flushed out, cleansed, that we might be used by God in the fullest degree that he would choose. So this healing, I think, prepared the way so that Jacob would be able to have this encounter with God. Things are right between him now and his father. And this was very important, I think. The healing between father and son, at least in part, seems to be indicated by the oral blessing that seems to just gush forth from Isaac here at this juncture. In verses 3 and 4, it doesn't seem like he's saying, well, you've been a real punk, but I, I hope God Almighty can somehow see to bless you. No, I, I don't think so. I think Isaac is saying, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful. And I mean, this man is pouring his heart into this blessing. It's coming forth from his inner being. He really wants his son to be blessed by God Almighty. I think Isaac now has fully come to understand that God has a program, that God has a covenant that he's bringing here, and that a covenant is not going to be passed through Esau. It's going to be passed through Jacob, and so you better get with the program and be the channel of blessing to Jacob so that he can continue the, the covenant on down through the history of the family. Isaac proclaims the blessing in the name of El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is only the second recorded instance in Scripture of this particular name being used for God. We noted previously back in the... Uh, 17th chapter, the first verse, when Abraham was 99 years old, we're told, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am El Shaddai. And then he gives the various blessings that are given in the next few uh, verses there. God Almighty. Now, what, what, is, what is truly implied in the Elohim by which he's been known? And, and even Yahweh this, of course, I think gives another facet. In Elohim, in uh, Yahweh, is El Shaddai. But how do Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob know this? They don't have scripture unfolded before them. They're, they're the living scripture itself. 
And so God is revealing another piece of his character uh, to them. Because, I mean, you know, they're bombarded with the, uh, the gods of that day, gods and goddesses all around the countryside uh, who are claiming to be deities. And obviously you, you, you become a, a polytheist while you accept every deity that comes along. You know, in, in downtown Rome, there's this strange-looking building called the Pantheon which was built in the first century BC. And, and the Pantheon was a building in which originally the statues of all the gods and goddesses were placed. Pantheon, you know, all gods. When, when Paul was in Athens, he, he said, you've got you know, rem remembrances of all the gods, and even in case you've forgotten when you've got to the, the altar, the unknown god. Hedge all your bets, cover all your bases, as we would say today. And, and this is the concept of the pantheon. The Romans, as they reached out, conquered nation after nation, they just simply absorbed their gods into uh, their pantheon and just added them. That's one of the things they had a great problem with the Jews, of course. The Jews didn't have a statue that could be put anywhere. Uh, their god wasn't in an image. And not only that, he was uh, exclusive God. This was really difficult for the Romans. And uh, they had a real problem with the Jews on that particular issue. But you can understand how being all-inclusive makes it easier to rule an empire, does it not? You can just accept the way people are and, and their gods and hopefully not ruffle any feathers and they'll all be happy, happy to be within this great empire. But here we have Isaac invoking the name that God had used when he proclaimed his covenant with Abraham, El Shaddai. And this was proclaimed before Isaac was even born, about a year or so before he was, was born. But Jacob himself will encounter the Lord as El Shaddai. In the 35th chapter, which we will eventually get to, probably even, maybe even this year, in the ninth verse of the 35th chapter, then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give it to you, too. So his father is blessing him in the name of God Almighty, and then Jacob later would encounter God as God Almighty. El Shaddai, apparently meaning the one who is enough, the all-sufficient God. As I understand, uh, this word is translated in the Septuagint as Pentocrator, uh, from the Greek, and... Uh, that the meaning basically there is all ruler, ruler of all, almighty one. The name is used 48 times in the Old Testament, a lot of those times in just the book of Job alone. But here God is revealing himself uh, further as the almighty. All the other gods of the earth are not gods in light of the almighty one. With no apparent thought for Esau, Isaac invokes the Abrahamic blessing now upon his son Jacob. And he sends him on this journey to Paden Aram. Go to Paden Aram. Isaac knew he would never again, or would never, I should say, go to Paden Aram. There's no record he ever went to Paden Aram. He was sending his son to a place that he had never been himself. But of course, the place from which his wife came. Now, the events that are described uh, in the latter part of chapter 27 and the first few verses of chapter 28 took place without Esau's knowledge at the time. This seems apparent. But once Jacob was gone, Esau discovered that, he, of course, was gone. Where's, where's Jacob? I haven't seen Jacob lately. What, what's happened to Jacob? And uh, finally, uh, Isaac tells Esau these events which have transpired and that Jacob is gone. He makes no effort at this time to follow his brother. 
Now, if he's so filled with rage, we might say, why doesn't he just chase after him? Well, of course, first of all, Jacob's got quite a lead on him. <laughs> I mean, Jacob's been gone, we don't know how many days, maybe even a week or more. Who knows how long? The, you know, the time frame is not given here. But I think the, the primary restriction, the, the thing holding Esau back, is the fact that his father yet lives. And he had said earlier, my father is going to die soon, and then I will kill my brother. And I don't think he wanted to bring wrath upon his head from his father by killing his brother while his father's yet living. So he's biding his time without knowing, of course, how long he was going to have to bide his time. Two decades. By that time, his wrath does cool some individually, although as a nation, that wrath continued because of its satanic empowerment. Now, how do we know that Isaac really told Esau all of these details? Well, we know because in verse 6, he says, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take to himself a wife from there. I mean, obviously, Isaac told him the whole thing, that this was the reason he was sent, and that he had been commanded not to take for himself a wife from amongst the Canaanites. You know, that should have rung a bell, bong. He's got two Canaanite wives. I mean, he doesn't learn real quick about some things, but it's finally beginning to settle in. He noticed, of course, that Jacob obeyed. Now, Esau, or that is Isaac, didn't say to Esau, because we're afraid you might kill him, we sent him. No, just because we want him to obtain a, a wife from up there, so, and, and Jacob is gone, so he apparently accepts that as being the truth. Because as far as he knew, he hadn't told anyone so that Isaac and Rebekah would know that he planned to kill his brother. But how foolish is this man? His foolishness and his selfishness is illustrated here by the fact that he finally acknowledges that the marriages that he has made to the two Canaanites has not pleased his parents that they have been caused great grief by this. And, and you remember, it was uh, at the end of the 26th chapter when uh, it says Esau was 40, he married these two ladies, uh, Basemath and Judith, and in the last verse of the chapter it says, and they brought, great, they brought grief to Isaac and, and Rebekah. He finally sees that, apparently. I don't know, you know, did he just choose to ignore it or to believe his parents were just acting like old fogies or or what. But here he finally acknowledges that this has caused great grief, it would seem. And since Jacob sought to please his parents by going all the way to Padanaram to uh, find a wife from amongst the family, Esau mistakenly believes here at this point that he could please his parents by finding a, a wife from amongst the relatives. This man serves as a wonderful example to us. A wonderful example of the folly of trying to do what is right by human strength and wisdom alone. And, you know, this is not far-fetched or, or uh, you know, far from us. We, we are tempted to do this too. We're tempted to do what we feel is the right thing, but to do it in our own strength, with our own talent, with our own ability, without really bathing everything in the teaching of the Word of God and in prayer, to know that this is what God would have us to do. But, you know, his unregenerate mind couldn't possibly conceive of the right way to do something. Scripture teaches us in Proverbs that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. And that's exactly the way that uh, Esau is going here. He doesn't know what is right. He's trying to do what he thinks is right. He mistakenly reads the whole situation and goes out and compounds the problem. So he goes to his uncle Ishmael and says, you know, I'd like one of your daughters. Now, did he go and look at the, how many daughters did he have? Well, certainly two at least, two are named. But, but he chose this girl. Now, was this girl really thrilled about this? Well, I don't know, but I don't think most girls would be particularly thrilled, to, even in that day, to go in a family where there are already two wives that have been there for a while, and you're just going to be number three now. I, I don't think that this was particularly thrilling to her, but of course her, 
her desires were not considered here. Generally, that was not part of the society, particularly in the pagan aspect of, of society in those days. Now, had he chosen this lady from the family of Ishmael without first having chosen the two Hittite ladies to be wives, then this might have been at least a reasonable step as far as his family was concerned. But now he's got three wives. Is this going to please his parents? Probably not. I mean, after all, Rebecca has been the one and only wife to Isaac all these years. And this has been a good situation. Oh, they've had their problems, as we know. But three wives just cannot be a better situation. So what we have here is, is, is simply an irresponsible action, a childish action, really. One of the big problems with selfishness is it's really childishness. And, uh, you know, you see somebody who is older and you think they should be wise and respected and revered and they're acting like a child because of their selfish drives and motives. And that's what you see here in Esau. Everything he does, he does to garner to himself something. In this case, he wanted his parents' love and acceptance. Well, he goes the wrong way to get it. So he compounds the problem with three wives. And on top of that, this lady is not going to be any asset. Because what home does she come from? The home of Ishmael. Well, who is Ishmael? <laughs> well, Ishmael's a rebel also. I mean, Ishmael and Esau were cut from the same piece of cloth, it would seem. Uh, both were hunters. Both were men of the bow and the arrow, and, and their families became, their, their children became uh, warriors and uh, people who live by the sword, so to speak. And so what do we have here? We're bringing another woman into the situation who probably is not going to be a be of benefit to Esau really much more than the two Hittite women. Now, the two Hittite women were undoubtedly totally pagan, worshiping the gods of the Hittites. But who did Ishmael worship? Well, we have no record that the Ishmaelites ever worshiped God, the true and the living God. Uh, they seem to have been a people of, of pagan extraction. This, this woman, for example, uh, Ishmael's daughter, is three-quarters Egyptian. Her mother is an Egyptian. Uh, so probably she was filled with Egyptian mythology and, and paganism. And if you ever look at uh, the, uh, the pantheon of Egyptian gods, uh, that pantheon is no better than any other pagan nation. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's even worse. I mean, they, they worship the strangest things at least from our perspective, strange. So Mahalath, the, the daughter of Ishmael, I don't think was much of an asset. She may have had a little bit of a better understanding than the two pagan Canaanite women because at least she was of the family. And certainly she knew something of Abraham and she knew something of Isaac and she knew something of Jacob and Esau. So it wasn't like a, a total stranger to the whole situation. But I think this was small consolation because I don't think she brings a true faith uh, into the family. Verse 10 of 28. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went, forward, went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. It's just real comfy feeling, you know. I mean, <laughs> something we'd like to do every night, I'm sure. And he had a dream, <laughs> no wonder. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. 
This is none other than the house of God, Bethel. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob left his parents. There's nothing in this passage to indicate who or what went with him. We're not told that anybody went with Jacob. It seems that he went alone. But when you think about the concern of his mother, and even now the concern of his father, and the mammoth household they ruled, the logic would be that they would send with him some people to guarantee his safety. But maybe not. Maybe he rejected all offers because he was going to go it alone. At least he's alone in this encounter, it would seem. There's no reference to anyone else being here. What was he? Had he ridden a camel with another camel in tow, you know, with his baggage? Was that how he was traveling across the landscape? Could well have been. Parents were, quote, well healed. He could have easily had any animals he wanted to go with him. Or was he walking? And I think most of us from our early Sunday school experience just get this picture of him fleeing away on foot, you know, carrying a little bag over his shoulder, sort of like the kid running away from home, you know. And, and, and that's the picture we have of Jacob, and that may be an accurate picture. You really can't tell from this passage. But if you put yourself in the place of his parents, you probably wouldn't want to, want to see your son going on a 500-mile journey like that. You'd want to equip him with the proper animals and see to it that some people went along with him to guarantee his safety. Because, you know, in, in those days it wasn't exactly, well, it may not have been as dangerous as it is to cross America, but it was pretty dangerous <laughs> to uh, travel north through Palestine in those days, Canaan. Uh, there were highwaymen and uh, raiders, and, you know, if a guy looked like he had anything, uh, they might uh, attack him for what he had. Of course, being on foot alone, he also would be less obvious, wouldn't he? Well, there are many ways we can argue one way or another without coming to resolution. There's no record in Scripture that this man had ever traveled any further north than Hebron before this time. But now he's on a long journey. He's going all the way to Paden Aram to the city of Haran, which was about 500 miles from Beersheba by the route he would have taken in those days. And if he were on foot, um, we're talking about a few days here quite a hike uh, all the way up there. And even on animal, it would have taken him a while. We're told uh, that he went north uh, from Beersheba to Hebron and then on to the city, which is identified a little bit later on, to a site near the city of Luz. So what, what, what can we picture here? I don't know if you could kind of put the scene of the, of the plain there uh, around Beersheba as he's crossing this relatively flat plain, and then he begins to ascend into the hills of Judea. And he ascends to what's nearly the high point of the hills of Judea there at Hebron. And from there, it's sort of downhill north towards the Jerusalem area as he would walk along what was known as the Ridge Route. Now, the Ridge Route was the middle of three major uh, routes of transportation in those days. The Via Maris, the way of the sea, ran along the coast to the west, and then the King's Highway ran along the uh, top of the plateau in what is today Jordan. In between was the less well-traveled ridge route that connected the little towns in Canaan together. And that apparently was the route that he was taking. And uh, he approaches the city of Luz, L-U-Z, about 30 miles north of Hebron, and that's where this rather well-known dream occurs. Now, Jacob had had a couple, maybe three days of solitude, assuming he was traveling alone. And during that time, he had had lots of time to meditate. You know that there are many people who can't stand to be alone? I mean, even with themselves for a few minutes. There are people who, I, I hope I'm not talking to anybody here, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but there are people that you've probably noted who they can't be anywhere without the radio or the television. You know, you've got to have this noise going all the time. And I think one of the reasons uh, for that is they don't know how to meditate <laughs> or they're afraid of it. Afraid of being alone with their thoughts and, and with God because there's something there, something that they know they're, they're not in communication with God. 
and, and they're afraid to, 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 to let that happen. And so got to have the noise, got to have something going on all the time to, to, so you don't have to think, don't have to meditate. I think I mentioned this before, but I read, uh, I don't even remember who the person was, a pastor in Southern California, though, he mentioned the fact that he, at once a year, he would go out into the desert all by himself for several days, camp out there, so he could just walk amongst the canyons out there and shout to God at the top of his lungs and sing to God at the top of his lungs and know there's nobody around to hear him, <laughs> criticize him for his voice or anything else. And he just, you know, it was a very great catharsis for him and a healing time uh, to, to go out there alone and just yell at the top of his lungs uh, to God and, and to listen to what God might say in return. And I, you know, I really think all of us need those moments of quiet those moments where we really do reflect on who God is and who we are before him. And certainly Jacob had this time to meditate upon his life, upon his future, upon his relationship to God. He was away now. He was away from what had been the influence in his life all these years of his mother and of his father. Although, I mean, this man is an adult now. I mean, we're talking about somebody who's 40 years old. We're not talking about a kid here. And uh, yet he had been under their authority and direction all these years. And now he is finally on his own. He's forced to stand by himself. He's forced to make his own decisions from this point on. He's going to have to choose a wife himself. He is going to have to make his way in the days ahead. And I think as he meditated, as he walked or rode, however he was moving along over the landscape, I think as these thoughts came in on him, he recognized he needed God. He needed God's help. Uh, you know, some people don't ever think seriously enough about life to recognize that they need God's help for important choices, like a mate, like a career. You know. uh, these kinds of things which are going to impact one for years and years. Some people just kind of crash into all these things, and they don't give it a second thought. But these are life-changing situations. I think one of the reasons the divorce rate is so high in America today is because people don't give any foresight to whether they really can live with this person for the rest of their lives before they start doing it. I think he's beginning to recognize that he needed God's help for the decisions he was going to have to make in the future. And this is a vital realization. People who never come to the place where they realize they need God are forever hopelessly lost. I think it's always important for us to note, too, that God always intervenes at the right moment in the right place. Sometimes we wish he would do it now, that God was at our beck and call. But as a servant of the Almighty, we recognize he is the one who calls the shots, and we move when he says move, rather than we telling him what to do and when to do it. We can ask him, he tells us to ask him, but then to, to walk in faith, knowing that he will, at the right time and the right place, touch our lives. Who's drawing this man Jacob? We ha I, I believe we have to, to understand that Jacob is being drawn by the Spirit of God here. He is being inexorably drawn to a face-to-face -face encounter with the Almighty, a life-changing rendezvous on a hilltop in Ephraim. Apparently, he was ready at least to begin to have an understanding of what God wanted to do. Uh, Jeremiah put it uh, well in the 10th chapter, the 23rd verse, where, you know, remembering Jeremiah being a man <laughs> uh, who was really put through the mill. I mean, literally drug off to Egypt against his will by these jerks who revolted against Nebuchadnezzar. I know the Lord, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. We've got to always remember that. It is not in us. We do not have the wisdom in us to walk the path correctly in our own strength. 
We've got to be totally, completely dependent upon God himself. It is not a crutch, as Lenin so often would say. Faith in God is not a crutch. It is absolutely essential to life. Where is Lenin now? Well, ever since they took him out of his tomb, <laughs> he is not really on display anymore to remind anybody of his words. You know, it really is important that we, we admit that we're not self-sufficient. And I, I've mentioned this before, but we have a dear loved one who feels he is a self-made man. He has what he has because he got it with his own strength and by his own ability. He knows better, but that's, he's insistent. We are not self-sufficient, and many of you I know have been through the mill and know that very well. And uh, this was something that Jacob was learning here on the hilltop. When we are ready and when we are in submission, God will do what he has promised. And most of us, I, I've heard it several times mentioned in, uh, you know, in the testimony time in church. Many have quoted Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Let, let me read the context there of uh, those verses. Proverbs 3, the first 12 chapters, I mean verses. Really a wonderful set of promises for us. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you, but bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father the son in whom he delights. I mean, those are wonderful words, and uh, they give us a real, I, I think, a kind of a balanced view of life. It is up to God to chart our path. It is up to us to walk in the way that he has set before us, to lean not into our own understanding. I mean, Esau, that's all he knew, and his understanding was faulty. Do not be wise in your own eyes. I mean, Esau was his own God, making his own choices so foolishly. Jacob was learning to fear the Lord and to turn away from evil. And notice that within this framework is the concept of discipline. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And that means there are going to be some things in our lives that we don't like too much, but God is using it to make us into the people he wants us to be because what he wants us to be may not be what we have thought we ought to be. We have our own desires. We seek certain things, but they may not be exactly God's choice for us at this time or in this place. So this is something that Jacob was learning. And as he learns it, hopefully we are learning it. Jacob's mind and heart may have been partially prepared for all of this by recollection now, the days are largely past, I think, for most of us to sit around the campfire and hear the patriarch of the family tell the history of the family and all the things that happened in his life. Not that it never happens, but that used to be the main way by which history was communicated in those days. I think Jacob may have remembered what his grandfather Abraham had told him around the fire at night. Best as can be determined in looking at the passage, it seems like Jake was about 15 or so, maybe, when his grandfather died. So probably he heard Abraham tell of the accounts of God's touch upon his life. I think Abraham was responsible enough that he would have told Jacob 
so that Jacob would have heard it from Abraham himself. And so Jacob may have had a, a fit of recollection here as he traveled over the landscape. Back in the 12th chapter of Genesis, let me just uh, look at those verses for a couple of verses there for a, mo for a moment, uh, 12, 7, and 8. Scripture says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountains on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. They built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord himself. So here Jacob is going into that very territory where God had appeared to his grandfather and where God had made these promises to his grandfather, where this probably, as far as the scripture is concerned, the original covenant was, was given. And he's going into that very territory at this time. So does he remember? Does he remember the words of his grandfather here? And, and does that help uh, prepare his mind and heart for the encounter that he will have that, that night? Did he even look, maybe? Was, was, was something left of Abraham's altar here in this countryside around? Doesn't say. But he slept that night and God appeared to him. He pulled up a nice soft stone <laughs> put his head on it. <laughs> probably not granite, you know. <laughs> no, that's probably limestone. That's mostly what you find around there. That's really hard to understand. You know, to me, I'd rather just sleep with my head on the ground than on a stone, but I don't know, maybe he was hard-headed or something and it was not a problem. <laughs> now, God had appeared to Abraham and to Isaac several times, but this is the first recorded theophany experienced by Jacob. First time where Jacob experienced, uh, experienced a direct encounter with the Lord himself. The imagery of uh, verse 12 here in chapter 28 teaches us at least two important truths, I think. Verse 12, and he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And of course, the artists have had all kinds of fun with that, and the Sunday school booklets usually have some little drawing of what this might have looked like. But to me, there are at least two truths that can be extracted from that single verse. First of all is that there is a connection between heaven and earth. We're not down here on this, this little 8,000 uh, mile diameter rock and God off in his heaven someplace with nothing connecting the two. I think that what we see here is that the eternal and the sublime penetrate the temporal and the ordinary. But can we remember that? Boy, it's really hard to do. To recognize that as we walk this earth day by day, the eternal and, and, and the majesty of God is penetrating, penetrating into human society. There is a contact. And in this case, that penetration is portrayed by a ladder. Now, the Hebrew word that's used for ladder here can mean stairway, but there are several other Hebrew words that mean stairway more directly. And uh, this word it is thought, therefore, probably does mean literally a ladder. It's the only time it's used in Scripture, this particular word. Now, ladders were not uh, something new. Ladders had been in use for a long time. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Adam and Eve invented the ladder. Who knows? Uh, I think things like that were in invented very, very early in human history. You know, going back to the early part of Genesis, if uh, the immediate descendants of Cain were already forgers of bronze and iron and developing complicated musical instruments, I mean, this to me negates the whole knuckle-dragger era, you know, uh, coming through uh, human development. That, whatever we have in terms of, of a decayed human race came afterward, not before, was not ancestral to the modern race, but was parallel to its development. So, so the latter had been in existence a long time, so it was not a, a foreign thought to uh, Jacob to see this, this structure uh, in his mind. But what, what does this latter portray? I think one of the things the latter portrays is the imminence of God. That God is here. That God has pitched his tent, as he literally would amongst Israel uh, later on when the cloud of fire and smoke was amongst them. Uh, as he will in Re Revelation where it says, and God will dwell in the midst of his people. God was here. From the very time the scripture tells us that the Spirit of God brooded over the surface of the earth, God has been here. He has not been a deistic God. 
just kind of spinning the earth out there like a child with a top and then walking away while it's spun. God is involved daily in what's happening here on planet Earth. I think this is portrayed in the nearness of heaven and earth. As many have said, heaven and earth are separated by one heartbeat for us individually. The latter reach to heaven, and I think this portrays God reaching down to mankind. And as you've heard certainly uh, many times, uh, Christianity is the only major religion whereby you have God reaching down to man. All the other faiths, it's man trying to reach up or strive to become God, which of course is the lie of the evil one. By believing in God and walking in faith and obedience, Jacob and his descendants could ascend that ladder. And I think God, Scripture tells us, God counted faith as righteousness. And Noah believed God, and God accounted it to him as righteousness. And so it would be for Abraham and the others. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we have the incarnation, where what happened? Jesus descended. Then on the Mount of Olives, when it was over, he ascended. And so we have really sort of that picture of the ladder in the New Testament, too. That connection between heaven and earth. And then secondly, and we'll end with this. The second truth we find here, I think, is that angels are God's emissaries, effecting his will here on this planet. Not because God needs angels to do it, but because God chose to use angels to do it. In Hebrews, we read, Are the angels not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who shall inherit salvation? And the whole idea of a guardian angel is not a, a human invention. It is a scriptural concept. I mean, it's been carried sometimes into non-scriptural ideas, but nevertheless, uh, God has sent his spirits, his angels, as ministering spirits to those who are to inherit salvation. You probably have read or heard of the little joke that some people have on their dashboard. Of course, it's a little outdated now because of the change in the speed limit, but uh, the, the, something like this, that angels retire at 65. You know, the idea, obviously, that the guardian angel is going to cease guarding if you pass the speed limit, but... I don't know that there's any theological implication there, but at the top of the ladder stood whom? God himself. Identified himself to, to Jacob as Elohim. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob knew exactly who that was. And then he made a promise, and we'll, we'll look at that promise next week.